Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew's Gospel. We're going to start in chapter 12. As we kick off this summer series through the parables, we are working through various parables of our Savior, various teachings from Jesus Christ in the parable format. And so before we dive in, we're going to do a little bit of introduction and then we'll dive into the text. So by way of introduction, I wanted to give you three reasons for why we are doing this series. Okay, three reasons for why we're doing this. Um, Number one, there is absolutely nothing better than sitting at the feet of Jesus and hearing him speak to us and letting him teach us. There's nothing better than that. In the parables from Jesus, not only are we sitting at his feet and hearing him teach us, but with parables, we, they, they are instinctively designed for us to have to kind of press in a little bit. We don't just get to sit down and let him teach and go, okay, that makes sense. All right, we're moving on. We have to press in a little bit. Some of these things are going to be a little bit trickier to understand, and Jesus designed his parables to be that way. And so we are going to be pressing in to seek the glory of God in these stories every time we come together, every time we gather. So number one, there's just nothing better than sitting at the feet of Jesus and having him teach us, and we're going to do that in an even more uh, attentive, uh, necessarily so. We have to press in to these stories. Number two, a second reason why we're doing this series is that many people have a misconception about why parables even exist. Um, why do they exist? If somebody were to ask you, why does Jesus teach in parables? What would your answer be? Jesus expressly tells us why he teaches in parables. And it totally makes sense based on what we're going to study today. And so I hope that maybe you already know the answer, but I hope that this will, if you don't know the answer, help you know why Jesus preaches and teaches this way in parables. But number two, that you'd be able to show these truths to others, that you'd be a teacher that would be able to teach others also as to why parables even exist, why Jesus speaks the way that he does. And finally, number three. So number one, we're sitting at the feet of Jesus, pressing into a story. Number two, there's misconceptions as to why parables exist. So we're going to figure out the real reason why they exist. Number three, many parables are familiar to us. Most are, and some aren't. And I love that about the parables. What we get to do this summer is we get to study some parables that are very familiar to us. And when when stories in the scriptures are familiar to us, we we tend to, um, with maybe a little bit of pride in our own hearts, just think, I already know this. I know that I was that way for many years when I would hear a preacher say, you know, take your Bibles and turn to John 3.16. I already have that sermon. I could preach that sermon. We're good. I don't need to be here. What I love about the familiarity of these passages is we're going to dive in deeper and hopefully see new things as we come humbly to God's word. Not like I have been so prideful in the past of just, I've got that. Let's move on to something I don't know already. So we get to revisit these parables. We kind of hit refresh on these parables, as it were, and we see them from a different point of view. Ultimately, I think that with the familiar parables, we tend to think that Jesus is speaking in in a sort of kind of hallmark way. Uh, Like these are cute stories. These are precious little stories that would go well on a hallmark card. And I think that that's what happens when we become familiar with a story. 
And I don't think that's the way that these parables are supposed to be seen and understood. So they're familiar, but some aren't familiar. And I think the ones that aren't familiar to you are not familiar to you for a reason. There are some very tricky, challenging parables, and we're going to tackle a couple of those. So hopefully you'll understand what those parables mean by the time we're done with this series. So three reasons as to why we are doing this series. Nothing better than sitting at the feet of Jesus. There's misconceptions as to why these exist. And hopefully as we go through this series, and specifically today, we're going to spend our time looking at why Jesus starts to preach in parables. But finally, if it's familiar, we're going to press into it a little bit more. And if it's not familiar, we're going to learn about it. We're going to dive into its truths. These parables that we're going to study this summer are amazing. They're glorious truths from Jesus Christ, the master storyteller. And I'm so looking forward to traveling with you this summer with Jesus in these verses. So let's start off with some more introductory matters. So I need to answer some of these questions before we even dive into the text, okay? So you can write these down. Number one, what is a parable? Number two, where are they found? And number three, why are they even given? Why are parables given? So number one, what is a parable? Number two, where are they even found? And number three, why are they even given? Why, why does Jesus preach in parables? So let's start with number one. What is a parable? What is a parable? I think the easiest way to define this word and to give a definition is to go to the word itself. It's two Greek words put together. Um, the, the Greek word para and the Greek word balo. Para, balo, put together. Para means beside um, or alongside. Um, balo means to place or to throw. So a parable, just literally speaking, is to place or throw alongside something, to put something next to something. So if we were going to give it a little bit more of a meaty definition, a parable is a comparison between things that are alike in some way. You're throwing something alongside of something that already exists that kind of compares in some way, shape, or form. Um, we even see this word today in math. You have to ask Michelle about this one because I don't know math, but a parabola, I believe, is a curve that if you look at the two sides, they're equal to each other in some way. They mirror each other. That's the same idea. Parabola, parabolo, um, looking the same on either side, comparing the sides, uh, they are alike in some way. And so Jesus picks up parables. He starts preaching in parables. If I were to give you the definition that I think we should use for parables, it would be this. He's preaching in parables using an ingeniously simple word picture, illuminating a profound spiritual lesson. So a parable in and of itself is a simple word picture that illuminates a profound spiritual lesson. Simple word picture, illuminating something profound. That's what a parable is. Number two, where are they found? Where are Jesus' parables found? Interestingly enough, they are not found in the Gospel of John, which is another reason why we're doing this, because we've been in the Gospel of John for about a year now, and now we're taking some time off, and we have to go to other books. We can't stay in John, because John does not record one single parable. They are only found in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew and, Mark have the, or Matthew and Luke have the most parables. Mark has six parables. And only one of those six is given only in Mark. So Matthew and Luke have all of the parables minus one. 
Matthew and Luke have all of the parables, but one that's recorded for us in Mark. There are roughly about 40 parables altogether. And it's difficult because some people take certain words as parables, some people don't take. So it's hard as you define it, um, how you would choose to count them. But roughly around 40 parables in the Gospels. Um, Matthew is very specific and and, uh, black and white about his telling of the parables. Uh, We'll see the the way that Matthew describes parables versus Mark versus Luke. But Matthew is very black and white. This This is what happened. This is what is said. This is what it means. Boom, we're done. Luke, however, is much more detailed. I like to think that Luke kind of shoots his film in in color and Matthew's in black and white. Luke is very detailed. We're going to look at Luke 15, one of the most detailed um, parables, one of the most well-known parables because it's the longest parable and it's so detailed, the parable of the prodigal son. So where do we find them? We find them in the Synoptic Gospels, mostly Matthew and Luke, six in Mark. Luke does... The most detail gives the most detail. Matthew is more black and white, and Mark is very quick in his telling of the parables. So that's what a parable is, where they're found. Number three, why are they even used? Why does Jesus teach in parables? If you go to Matthew 5, for instance, the Sermon on the Mount, that's not a parable. Jesus is just saying, this is what the reality of the the Word of God and of the Kingdom of God, this is what it is. Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Just very straightforward, clear teaching. Why does he move to parables? Now, this is where the misconception comes. Most people, again, if somebody were to ask you, why does Jesus speak in parables? I think the biggest answer that people give is he wants to make his teaching accessible. He wants to make it known. So he's giving an analogy. He's giving an illustration. Um, He's saying, okay, you don't understand what the kingdom of God is, so I'm going to tell you what it's like over here using an example in the real world. So a parable equals illustration to most people, a sermon illustration. My problem with that is that they're really bad sermon illustrations because he's constantly having to explain them. So if Jesus is using parables as a means of illustrating so he can clarify what he's teaching, then he's doing a terrible job of doing that. Because after he gives a parable, if it's an illustration, after he gives a parable as an illustration, the people should go, oh, that makes sense. I get it. But the response is always, what did you mean by that? That makes no sense to me. So either Jesus is a really bad teacher using terrible illustrations that never work, or parables are not given as illustrations, which I believe it's the latter. Parables are not given as mere illustrations. Do they clarify truth? Absolutely. Do they make his teaching a little bit more accessible? Absolutely. Do they make certain aspects about his teaching easier to understand in some places? But I believe the majority of the the purpose of parables, the, the main purpose of parables, is to clarify things for those who want to hear it, but to confuse for those who would reject him. Clarify for some, confuse for the rest. Jesus is purposely giving truth in a veiled format. He's giving symbols, symbolic language that hides the truth from anyone who does not desire to seek out the meaning. In order to understand the parables, you have to do a little Indiana Jones and the hidden meaning of the story. You have to figure out what is the point of what's being said here. And so if somebody says, I don't like Jesus and I don't think he's the Messiah and I don't think we should be listening to him anyway... 
when Jesus says, um, just out of nowhere, there was a man, he had some grain, he threw it out from his hand and landed on the road, nothing happened, landed in thorns, worked for a while, landed in stony soil, worked for a while, but both of them died out, landed in good soil, bared 30, 60, 100 fold, have a nice day. Most people will go, yeah, I knew he was crazy all along. I knew he was crazy. What kind of a story is that? That makes no sense. But if you believe he is the Son of God, you're going to go, man, that sure did sound crazy. But I know that he means something by it. And it will force you to press into it. Those who desire to hear and who will do the work to press into it, the parables do clarify. But those who desire to oppose and reject Jesus... The parables hide the meaning that Jesus is trying to convey, the truth that Jesus is trying to convey. Now, why would Jesus ever do that? So they're not illustrations. Parables aren't illustrations. Parables are given to confuse the truth, to hide the truth, to conceal the truth. Why would Jesus ever do that? You have to be in Matthew 12 to find that out. And that's what we're going to do With our time this morning, we are going to answer the question, why does Jesus change from teaching just perfectly clear truth to veiled, concealed, befuddled truth? Why does he do that? Matthew chapter 12 gives us four different conflicts. We're going to take this rather quickly, but four different conflicts that we're going to see that will ultimately um, become the the culmination of Jesus' clarifying ministry And move into his parables where he starts speaking in confusing language for those that would reject him. This, Matthew 12, this passage answers the question, why does Jesus change? Why the change in his style from teaching clearly to parables? So let's take these conflicts together. The first conflict that Jesus has with the religious leaders is found in Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. And it's conflict over the Sabbath. Conflict over the Sabbath. So if you want to kind of outline these four conflicts, this is chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. And it's conflict over the Sabbath, specifically picking grain on the Sabbath. Let's read it together. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. There's nothing wrong with that. In God's economy of the Sabbath, there's nothing wrong with that. There's something terribly wrong with that in the Pharisaical tradition of the Sabbath. You, you all know how they took the Sabbath and they made it oppressive. They rejected God's understanding of the, of the Sabbath and God's command for the Sabbath. It was supposed to be a day of rest. It was supposed to be a day that was freeing. Um, the, the Sabbath was made to encourage man and to enable them to rest. And the Pharisees brought all of these rules, all of these regulations, so that it became oppressive. So they're picking the heads of grain, they're eating, and the Pharisees see this, verse 2. And they said to Jesus, look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath, according to them. It's totally lawful to do in God's economy, but according to them, it's unlawful. So Jesus says to them, have you not read what David did when he became hungry? He and his companions, how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? What Jesus is saying is, number one, this isn't unlawful. But number two, if it were, it would still be okay. 
it would still be okay. Didn't you read that David, quote-unquote, broke the Sabbath because he needed to survive? He needed to eat. And so he ate um, a a meal that was supposed to only be given to the priests. It was not allowed to be eaten by anybody else, and he ate it. Well, that's breaking the law. Jesus says he did that, and it was totally fine by God's standard. The priests are always working during the Sabbath, and they're innocent. You're misunderstanding the law. You're misunderstanding the spirit and the point of the law. And why are they misunderstanding it? Verse 6, I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. You're misunderstanding the law because it points to me. I'm the fulfillment of the Sabbath. Jesus is the perfect Sabbath rest. He bought the Sabbath rest for us on the cross when he says, it's finished, it's paid in full, nothing for you to do. So you're missing the point, Pharisees. But, verse 7, if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. And by the way, I am Lord of the Sabbath. So you're missing the law, you're missing the point, and you're missing the fact that I own the Sabbath. I created it, I made it, I ordained it, I own it. This is not going to go well with the Pharisees. If there's anybody that you would have said back in that time period, owned the Sabbath day, it's the Pharisees. And Jesus speaks up and says, you don't own it, I do. And you've made a mess out of it. You've completely misunderstood it. So the religious leaders, the pastors, Jesus says, you don't know anything that you're talking about from the Bible. You don't get it. That's the first conflict. Notice this conflict is very, quote-unquote, random. There's just kind of a happening, right? Jesus and his disciples are just walking, and the Pharisees happen to see them. Oh, you're not allowed to do that. It's very casual. But things are going to escalate quickly. Verse 9 the second conflict. This is conflict over the Sabbath again, but it's specifically regarding healing a man. So departing from there, Jesus went into their synagogue. Now Matthew's going to do a great job to stack these stories together to, to show us a point, to prove a point. Luke uh, chapter 6 verse 6 actually tells us that these are two separate Sabbaths. They're two different days. And so Matthew is going to set up for us why parables exist by pushing these stories together. He's trying to get us to see this is why Jesus started speaking in parables. It's because of this conflict, this conflict, this conflict, this conflict. All put together, parables had to happen after these four things. So Matthew just shoves these stories together. Jesus enters the synagogue. Verse 10, there's a man whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? So the first Sabbath controversy, picking the heads of grain, was a a, a random, quote-unquote, random, if you will, just a happening. Jesus is walking, disciples are hanging out, they're picking grain, and the Pharisees say, hey, you can't be doing that. Now, this is a much more purposeful, this is a much more precise Jesus is going on to their turf. Remember, the Pharisees owned and controlled the synagogues, and that's where Jesus goes. And the Pharisees are setting this up, as it were, because they want to accuse Jesus. So tension is mounting. Things are escalating quickly. Mark chapter 3 records this uh, exact healing. And Mark 3 tells us it's actually Jesus who speaks up first. So Jesus walks into the synagogue, sees a man with a withered hand, walks over to him and picks, I I like to think, picks up his hand, puts his arm around him and and points to him and stares at the Pharisees and says, can I heal him? It's the Sabbath. Can I heal him? 
Matthew gives us their response. Is it lawful to do that? You, you tell me. I don't know. Is it lawful to do that? And Jesus says, verse 11, What man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? You'll break the Sabbath. You'll do work to save an animal. How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? How much more valuable is this man than an animal? So then, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Is it? He says it is. Your question is an awful question. It is lawful to do good. And so he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and was restored to normal like the other. So instantly restored. Everything that we've been studying in the Gospel of Mark. Instantly restored. Instant youth. No physical therapy needed. No atrophy needed to overcome. This guy's instantly healed. The Pharisees' response to this should be, this man truly is the Son of God. And what is their response? Verse 14. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. So the first conflict with the picking the heads of grain, they go, oh, that's not right. The second, they decide we're going to establish something that will entrap him, that will make us be able to accuse him and destroy him. When that doesn't work out, they decide we're going to kill him. We're going to kill him. We have to find a way to kill him, verse 14. So Jesus, aware of this, verse 15, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all. He warned them not to tell who he was. He didn't want to be known for being a healer. He wanted to be known for being the Messiah and saving from sin, not just from sickness. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. He shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, not cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off. A smoldering wick he will not put out. So things that are, are broken, that seem useless, he's going to take care of them until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. So this is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Um, and if you go down, we don't have time to do it, but if you were to go down in Isaiah 42... Isaiah continues to prophesy about who the Messiah will be and what the Messiah is going to do. And a couple of the things that Isaiah says about the Messiah is he's going to open the eyes of the blind. He's going to release prisoners from darkness. There's a lot of guesses as to what that means. Um, but I think we know what it means based on what's coming up next. Matthew is establishing a very clear description that Jesus is the Messiah. He already did not destroy a smoldering wick, a broken reed. He, uh, he took this battered reed of a man, this man who had a withered hand, and he took care of him. He's not going to leave him alone. And that conflict, the second one, escalates, brings the Pharisees to a place where they want to kill him. Third conflict, verses 22 through, through 37, 22 through 37 this is where we culminate in Matthew chapter 12. A demon-possessed man, verse 22, who was blind and mute. This guy's having a bad day. He's blind, he's mute, and he's demon-possessed. All three things happening at one time. Why? 
We know God's purposes. We know no purpose of God's can be thwarted. And we know in John 9, that we'll get to in the fall, that God ordains that people would go through physical uh, deformities and, and physical ailments for a purpose for his glory. This man was set up exactly for this moment, for this time, because the Isaiah prophecy in Isaiah 42 describes such a person, a man who is stuck, a prisoner in darkness and in bondage, a man who is stuck in demon possession, a blind man. And if you go all the way down in 42, you get to a, a loosening of the tongue, an ability to speak when you can't. So Isaiah 42 is clearly describing the, the Messiah and what he's going to do. And here comes one man who has all three descriptions that Isaiah talks about. My professor used to say, this is an insanely messianic miracle. This is an insanely messianic miracle. There's going to be no doubt. Jesus is going to see this man, middle of verse 22, and he healed him. Just very simply, Matthew is, again, very black and white, not detailed. Just he heals him. He sees him. He heals him. That's it. The mute man spoke. He saw And the demon is gone. Now, verse 23, all of the crowds are amazed. And they were saying, this man cannot be the son of David. Can he? This is an amazing question. The crowds see Jesus perform a miracle that fulfills a prophecy that they originally thought from Isaiah 42 is several different people. We've got a demon-possessed man, we've got a mute man, we've got a blind man, we've got all these different people, and the Messiah is going to take care of all of them and heal all of them. And here's one person who has all three of those descriptions inside of himself, and Jesus says, be healed, and he's healed. And the crowds instinctively say, well, he's the Messiah. He's the Messiah. The only snag in their minds is the Pharisees. The Pharisees have been constantly saying he's not the Messiah, he's not the Messiah, he's not the Messiah. So this question is directed towards the Pharisees. They see Jesus. I like to think that the crowds are in the middle. Jesus is over on one side and the Pharisees are over on the other. And this man shows up. Jesus heals them. And the, the, the crowds are constantly doing this. Uh, wait, what you said about him, he did this. You, what? They are caught in the middle. They're stuck. And they say... He's got to be the Messiah. He's got to be the son of David. But you're telling me he's not. So how does this work? Help us. The Pharisees, verse 24, do a little holy huddle here. They figure out, how do we answer that? They know he's the Messiah. They know he is. They just don't want to believe that. They want to reject him. They don't agree with what he's saying, so they don't want to believe that he's the Messiah. But they know he is. So they're going, okay, he just performed the miracle. The crowds get it. They see it. We can't deny that he did the miracle. Everybody saw this. So this is the best answer they can come up with. Verse 24. When they hear this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. He casts out demons by Satan's power, not by God's power. Verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste. Any city or house divided against itself won't stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I, by Beelzebub, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So you're doing these things too, so do you do it by the power of Satan? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
He's very logical. This doesn't make sense, Pharisees. Why would this even work? How is this even possible? How is this helping if Satan's goal is to possess everyone with demons? How is this helping his goal? Verse 29, how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? My kingdom's coming. I'm going to bind the strong man. He will then plunder his house. Um, He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. So he logically answers, says that doesn't work for a number of different reasons. But verse 31 is the key. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. Any sin, any blasphemy, you can be forgiven of any sin and you can be forgiven of any blasphemy except the blasphemy against the spirit that shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the son of man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. And this brings up the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about this before, the unpardonable sin. What is the unpardonable sin? If I can just define it for you, the unpardonable sin is determined disbelief. No matter what evidence God gives to prove that Jesus is who he claims to be, I will not believe. Um, many people have asked me, yeah, I, I think I committed the unpardonable sin. I, I, I need help. I don't think I can be forgiven. What do I do? Rarely do I ever think they actually committed the unpardonable sin. Um, committing the unpardonable sin is going to your grave saying, I will never believe in Jesus. Um, there is no one in hell who has not committed the unpardonable sin. Everyone in hell is somebody who has said, no matter what you show to me, God, no matter what you do to prove that Jesus is who he claims to be, I will not believe. It's just determined, defiant disbelief. And the Pharisees are guilty of that. Specifically, when it's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, what Jesus is saying is, I just did a miracle through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a great picture of the incarnation and what Jesus did with the kenosis where he laid aside, he, he emptied himself of the independent exercise of his divine attributes. He didn't lay aside his deity. He was fully God. But he laid aside the independent exercising of those divine attributes. So he's waiting on the Father through the power of the Spirit, just like we do. And so the Spirit's the one who did this miracle through Jesus. So it's the Spirit who is being blasphemed. It's the Spirit who is being blasphemed by the Pharisees when they say, you just did the miracle because of the Spirit uh, being from Satan. It's Satan's doing it, not the Holy Spirit from God. That's why Jesus says in verse 32, you can speak against me. You can speak against me all you want, and I can forgive you. But if evidence is being given to you to believe in me as the Messiah and you're rejecting it, well, then nothing will work and you will not be forgiven. Verse 33, he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. The tree is known by its fruit. Your words are your fruit and they are proving to me, Pharisees, that you will not believe no matter what happens. You won't believe. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. It says in the middle of verse 34, For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Your hearts are wicked. So I tell you, verse 36, Every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account for 
in the day of judgment. By your words, you'll be justified. By your words, you'll be condemned. Not justified as in declared righteous, but vindicated. By your words, you will prove to be good, a good tree bearing good fruit. And Pharisees, by your words, you are being condemned right now because no matter what I do, you will not believe. You won't believe. That's the third conflict, and that's the culmination of the conflict. The unpardonable sin. But the fourth conflict ends this chapter out. It's verses 38 through 50. And it gets us, it's the on-ramp to the parables. Verse 38, some of the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. We want to see a sign from you. Verse 39, he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. I'll give you one last sign. (laughs) His answer could easily have been, number one, I just gave you a sign. I just healed this demon-possessed blind mute man. I just did it, and you didn't believe it. So he says, you don't get any more signs. I'm going to give you one more sign. It's the sign of Jonah, verse 40. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation of the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. That's the second time we've seen that phrase. Something greater is here. I'm greater than the Sabbath and all of your laws. I own the Sabbath. I made the Sabbath. I'm greater than Jonah and the amazing sign of being swallowed by a fish and spit out to preach at Nineveh. I'm greater than that. And you're missing it. You're missing it. Drop down to verse 46. So he condemns them. He says, I'm not going to give you a sign. And then verse 46, while he is still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. So he says, you Pharisees won't get a sign because you're not going to believe. You don't receive me for who I declare I, I am. You don't receive me. You don't hear me. You don't listen to me when I preach, when I teach. You will not receive me. You have rejected me, and that rejection is full. It's final. And at this, this last section in chapter 12, Jesus puts a stamp on that finality. He says, you're not a part of my family. You're not receiving me because you're not receiving my words. You're rejecting me. Therefore, I'm going to reject you. And I'm going to speak, as it were, to my family. I'm not speaking to you anymore. I'm speaking just to my family. And that's why he begins to speak in parables. Verse 1 of chapter 13, that day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea and a large crowd gathered to him. So he got into a boat, sat down, the whole crowd was standing on the beach and he spoke many things to them in parables saying, this is new. It's the first time in Matthew that we're going to come across a parable. This is new. He's never spoken like this before. He hasn't had to. His disciples are going to say, why are you doing this? They're going to latch on to your teaching style changed. You were very clear, made total sense, and now we don't know what you're saying. Why? Why did you do that? Verse 10. 
The disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak in parables? Jesus said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. So whoever has and is receiving it and is accepting it, you're going to be given more. You'll have an abundance. But if you don't have, if you're rejecting me, if you're rejecting my words, even what you have been given will be taken away from him. So I've been giving you truth, Pharisees. I've been speaking truth in clear-cut words. These make total sense. And you've rejected me. Therefore, I'm taking that truth from you and I'm giving it in a veiled format to my disciples who are going to believe. They are going to receive. Verse 13, Therefore, I speak to them in parables because while seeing they do not see, while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says you will keep on hearing, but you're not going to understand. You will keep on seeing, but you'll not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes. They would hear with their ears. They would understand with their heart, and they would return. They would repent. I would heal them. If they would receive me, they would repent. They would totally turn, totally change, totally accept me. But they're not. Verse 16, but blessed are your eyes because they see. Blessed are your ears because they hear. Truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it. It's another way of saying something greater than them is here. I'm here to teach. They didn't see it. They wanted to hear what you hear, but they didn't hear it. So, why parables? Why parables? If I can answer it in two ways, I would say it this way. Number one, parables are a divine judgment. Parables are a divine judgment. They are a judgment against the Pharisees and against all who would say at that moment, there's nothing you can do to prove to me that you're the Messiah. I will not receive. I will not believe. I will always reject you, no matter what you do. So Jesus says, then you won't get truth anymore. I'm not going to give you any more truth. I'm giving it only to those who will receive and will accept. But in that, number two, It's a divine grace. It's divine judgment, but it's a divine grace. And here's why. We will all be accountable for the truth that we have received on the last day. On the day of judgment, we will be accountable for the truth we have received. Whatever truth we haven't lived out by God's grace, um, our punishment has been given to Jesus and not to us. But to those who have rejected Jesus... They will be accountable and they will have to give an answer for why they did not live according to the the truth that they knew. So if you give more truth to somebody who is rejecting, you give more condemnation. And since these Pharisees have out and out rejected Jesus to the point where he says, this can't be forgiven. You are determined in your disbelief. You're done. He knows they're condemned. Therefore, he stops truth going to them anymore so they're not going to be accountable for any more truth so it's a divine judgment you won't receive any more truth but it's a divine grace therefore you will not be accountable you will not be receiving guilt upon guilt piling up because i'm concealing the truth in these stories so in short jesus's miracles had a clear twofold purpose they hid the truth from self-righteous self-satisfied people that did not believe they needed the Messiah or thought that Jesus was the Messiah at all. 
And they revealed truth to those eager to learn from the master. They concealed truth and they revealed truth. That was the purpose of parables. Why parables? Because Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he preached in parables so that we hear the truth and the truth would set them free. That's the why. We know what parables are. We know where they're found. And now we know why Jesus begins to speak in parables. So the question that faces us today, before we begin in a specific parable, and we're going to pick it back up in Matthew 13 next week. But before we begin to dive into any specific parable, we have to ask ourselves, which camp do we land in? Now, by God's grace, I don't believe anybody here has committed the unpardonable sin. You're here. You're wanting to hear the word of God. So let me tweak the question a little bit. How do you receive the word of God? When the word of God is preached, how do you receive it? Are you teachable? Are you eager to learn? Are you satisfied with what you know already and and you really don't need anything else from Jesus? Do you come before him and fall at his feet And say, please be my guide. Please be my teacher. Do you do that regularly during the week? Not just here. Is the word of God to you more precious than fine jewels? More precious than honey? More precious than anything that this world has to offer? Psalm 19 would describe that. If the word of God is that way to you, then you are going to enjoy pressing into these parables. They're going to be concealed truth. It's going to be truth that you're going to have to press in and you're going to be saying, God, I want to hear it. I want to know it. I want to see it. And I want to live according to it. But if you reject the word of God, if you somehow stand above it and and find yourself judging God's word instead of letting God's word do the judgment on your heart, then the parables aren't going to hit home. They're going to be concealed to you. And you're not going to be able to live in repentance according to them. Psalm 32 talks about being meek. Um, Psalm 32 verses 8 through 9. Don't be stiff-necked. Don't be stubborn like the mule. Come teachable. Come humble. James chapter 3 verses 13 through 18 describe this as well. A, A meekness that has wisdom inside of it. So, do you press into Jesus' word? Are you eager to learn? And do you come longing to be satisfied and knowing that you will be when the word of God is poured out? God, thank you so much for your word and our time this morning in uh, the, the gospel of Matthew. God, we don't want to be a stiff-necked people. We don't want to be a people who would stop up our ears. And while hearing, we don't hear who would close our eyes so that while seeing, we don't see. God, we don't want to stand in conflict with Jesus. We have seen evidence that he is the Son of God, and we believe, we accept, we submit. And so, God, we want to receive. We want to be people that would come with hearts opened, ready to hear you speak, and ready to receive your word. And so, God, now, even as we sing and we prepare our hearts for communion, I pray that we would look inward 
and see the times where maybe we have not believed your promises. Maybe we have rejected your word. Maybe we have gone to something else or someone else to be satisfied. And that we would repent of that today. And we would prepare our hearts even now for the weeks ahead of being able to hear your word preached and the days ahead of being able to be with you in your word every day. So may we look inward, but God, may we look upward and outward to see you, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So God, prepare our hearts now to hear your word, the word that we will be hearing every day as we come before you, and the gracious word that we will hear every Sunday as we gather together.